since I last spoke four weeks ago now, a black man was shot and killed by a policeman in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. A black man was shot and killed by a policeman in St. Paul, Minnesota. A black man shot and killed five white police officers in Dallas, wounding nine others. A black man in Baton Rouge shot and killed three police officers. Police officers have been targeted, attacked, or shot at in Tennessee, Missouri, and Georgia. A white police officer in Austin violently arrested a black female elementary school teacher who had been stopped for speeding. He threw her on the ground, arrested her, and later told her that police officers are wary of blacks because of their violent tendencies. A white police officer shot a black man in North Miami who was lying down on the street with his hands up who turned out to be a behavior therapist trying to help an autistic patient in his care. An Islamic terrorist drove a 19-ton truck through a promenade in Nice, France, killing 84 people and wounding another 303. A coup attempt occurred in Turkey in which over 200 people were killed. A radicalized Islamic terrorist wounded four in an axe attack on a train in Germany. And on Friday, a teenage gunman shot and killed nine in a Munich mall shooting. That's all just been in the last four weeks. Perhaps in response to all of that, near my home, a new billboard went up that reads, Love for all, hate for none. The day after the Nice terrorist attack, Bono, who was apparently half a mile away dining when it all happened, tweeted that love is bigger than anything in its way. About a month ago, this was before July, just after a a terrorist attack in Orlando uh, back in June, a number of Broadway stars released a video of support in which they sang, what the world needs now is love. Earlier this week, actress Penelope Cruz posted to Instagram a picture with the lyrics to John Lennon's song, Imagine, and she hashtagged it, love. I don't question the sincerity of any of those expressions of love and support. I appreciate the sentiment, and I agree, frankly, with the message But for all of the slogans and songs and hashtags about love dating all the way back to the hippie movement in the 1960s, I would like to offer this observation. The history of the human race tells us that we are incapable of the love for one another that we know we need. If we could love our way out of our problems, we would have done it by now. And then there's this. I wonder if anyone really knows what any of those songs and slogans and hashtags mean. Love for all, hate for none. Okay, great. But what is loving behavior? 
And, and what is hateful behavior? Who decides that? Does love mean simply accepting what another person does regardless? Is that what love is? Is it, is it hateful to tell someone who's doing something that they feel is good and right? Is it hateful to tell them that they're wrong and that they should stop doing what they're doing? Is that hateful? It seems to me that in order for these songs and slogans and hashtags about love to have any meaning, something more is needed if they're going to do uh, any good. Would you agree? I want to go back this morning to the series that uh, some of you are probably wondering if we're ever going to finish. Uh, It's from the last half of the book of Mark, and it's called The Last Days of Jesus Christ. And in what seems like more than just a coincidence to me, we, we find ourselves this morning in the wake of a violent month of July in a passage in which Jesus speaks about love. But he does so in a way that I think gives meaning to the slogans and the songs and the hashtags. If you would find uh, in your Bible, Mark chapter 12, turn to verse 28. Uh, I would appreciate that. I'll meet you there in just a moment. Mark chapter 12 and verse 28 is in the New Testament. Mark is the uh, second book in the New Testament. It's one of the Gospels. And if you would, turn to Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. And I want to welcome those of you who uh, are joining us uh, over the internet. We're glad that you're with us as well. I want to just remind you of the context of this passage because as I said, it's been about four weeks since we looked at it. It is Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. Two days from now, he will be crucified. Every religious sect in Israel has sent delegations to try to trap Jesus with theological questions that are intended to prove once and for all that he's a fraud, but to no avail. In fact, Jesus had just finished brilliantly refuting one such delegation who tried to show him up regarding his contention that there is life after death. And I want to pick up the reading now, as I said, in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. One of the teachers of the law came, and he heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments... Which is the most important? Verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he said the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. There's a lot here and in the remaining verses that we're going to read that we could talk about uh, this week, but because of the cultural moment in which we live, I think we'd be best served this morning just meditating for a few minutes about what Jesus has to say about love here. And in this passage, Jesus teaches us that in order for this word love to have any meaning and to do any good in our world, It requires three things. I'm going to walk through all three of these. Let me give them to you up front. Love requires an absolute definition. It requires a righteous motivation. And it requires an ultimate demonstration. Let me say it again. Love requires an absolute definition, a righteous motivation, and an ultimate demonstration. Let me walk you through all of these. Let's start with an absolute definition. Now, Mark tells us that a teacher of the law asks a question to Jesus about which commandment is the most important of all of the commandments uh, in the Old Testament. 
uh, in the law, in the Mosaic law. Now, just so that you understand, uh, this isn't just this guy's question. It's not something that he just thought up here uh, in the moment. Among all of the teachers of the law in that day, this was a hotly debated topic. In the whole law of Moses, they had counted and found that there were 613 distingu- uh, distinguishable commandments of the law of Moses. Some of those commandments were stated positively, some of them were stated negatively, you know, so like positively would be like do this, negatively would be like don't do this, but 613 commandments in all. Now, now what he's asking is not so much, he's not, he's not really asking like is one law more important than another law, like is it important, more important to not steal than it is to not commit adultery, that's, that's not really what he's asking. What he's really asking is... Uh, Is there a command that unifies all of these 613 commandments? Like, is there one command that all of the other commands are just sort of explaining, right? That they're just sort of saying, here's what it means to do this. And Jesus answers the man in the affirmative. He says, yes, there is a commandment, or rather two commandments, that summarize all 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. And he takes him, in verses 29 through 31, he takes them back to the law itself, two particular verses. In Deuteronomy 6, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 5, he takes him back, and he says, uh, Hear, O Israel... The Lord is one, and then this is the, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, you know, all. okay, that's that part. And then, he, and then he takes them to Leviticus 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 18, which is the love your neighbor part. So those two verses, Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Leviticus uh, 19, 18. And what Jesus is saying here to this man is that the whole rest of the law, the other 611 commandments are all just fleshing out. They're just, you know, they're, they're an exposition on those two commandments. Now, now, understand, he's not saying, oh, just do those two things and forget the rest. That is not it at all. He's saying that these two things, love God, love your neighbor, these are the foundational principles on which the rest of the law is built. Now, here is why this is so relevant for us today. What Jesus is saying is completely countercultural. He's saying that, the, that without the other 611 commandments of the law that God gave to Israel and to the rest of the world, by the way, we would never know. Without those commandments, we would never know what love really is. All of the slogans, all of the songs, all of the hashtags are meaningless. Without God's law, they mean well, don't get me wrong, but they're meaning less. And this is radically countercultural, you see, because we, we don't want love to have uh, laws. We don't want love to have rules. We don't want uh, love to have limits, right? We, don't want, we just want to do the loving thing. We just want to be loving without laws, without rules, without limits, right? But here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with that. Many years ago, uh, and I'll tell you the problem by this story. Many years ago, a good friend of mine um, 
was, he was married and he had a bunch of kids, like a slew of kids. I mean, his wife just kept churning them out. I couldn't keep track of how many kids he had. He had a bunch of them. Let me just say that. At his workplace one day, he meets this other woman and he falls head over heels in love with her. And he tells me that he is sure that God put him and this other woman in that workplace together to meet because his marriage had gotten difficult and her marriage had gotten difficult too. Okay, let's apply the songs and the slogans. Let's use this one. What the world needs now is love. That's what the Broadway stars sang uh, in support of the uh, families and uh, people who had been killed in the Orlando club. They sang, what the world needs now is love. And I, by the way, I'm not making fun of that. I agree with them. But let's just apply that song to this situation with my friend. Well, okay, he loves this other woman. What the world needs now is love. On the basis of that, should he leave his wife and his kids for this woman? Would that be the loving thing to do? Or should he stay with his wife and his kids? Would that be the loving thing to do? And what about my role in his life? He feels great about this new relationship. He is convinced that God put him and this woman together in this workplace to find each other. Should I just accept that what he feels is good and loving? Or should I say, dude, leaving your wife and kids would be wrong. Don't do it. By saying that, am I being hateful? Does the song help you? What the world needs now is love. How do we know which action is loving? And besides that, let me ask you this. Who decides which action is the most loving? Is it me? Do I decide that? Is it, is it my friend? Does he decide it? How about his new girlfriend? Does she decide it? How about, his new, how about his old wife? Does she decide it? How about his kids? Do they decide it? What is the loving thing to do? And who gets to decide that? This is, you see, why God gave the law to the world. In order for humanity to flourish, we needed an absolute definition of love. In order, in order for us to, to flourish, we, we couldn't thrive, you see, if there was no absolute definer of love. That would be relativistic chaos. Imagine the chaos. If everyone in that story is right, and everyone in that story is wrong, how could you live in that world? We need an absolute definer of love, and we couldn't thrive if the absolute definer didn't give us an absolute definition of love. That's what the Mosaic Law was intended to be, an absolute definition of what love is and what love is not. Now, I... I I want to just push this point a little further because I know that those of you who came uh, from legalistic religious backgrounds, and, I know, and, and you know, look, there are a lot of you that have come from those kind of backgrounds. I know all of this talk about the law makes you recoil. But I want to show you why the religious background that you grew up in really had no clue 
about what real Christianity is. Jesus is telling this teacher of the law that when the law is used rightly, part of its purpose is to give definition to love. Now, see, this is, this is different than what most of you grew up with. You grew up in religious sects that used their law or their codes or their rules to exclude people, to self-righteously judge people, and to measure themselves against other people. That was the purpose of their law, their codes, their rules. And when the law is used in that way, when any law is used in that way, it kills and destroys. And by the way, when I talk about law, I'm talking about moral law. When any moral law is used in that way, it kills and destroys. But Jesus says that the Mosaic law, when it's used correctly, shows us how to give meaning to the word love. Now, let me show you. Let me show you what I mean. If the whole law is meant to be an absolute definition of love, that means that whether a commandment is stated positively, do this, or negatively, don't do this, the purpose of it is still love. So let's use, don't commit adultery. If I merely, okay, we're going to use the commandment, don't commit adultery. If I merely never commit adultery as a husband, Have I fulfilled the law? No, I haven't fulfilled the law because the law, the purpose of the law was to give definition about what love looks like. I could not commit adultery and yet be an absolute jerk to my whole family day in and day out. The idea is that I am to be a completely loving husband. And the byproduct of that being that I'm to be so consumed with love for my wife and for my children that I would never hurt them by committing adultery. That's what that don't commit adultery is speaking to, okay? Let me give you another one. How about don't steal? If I merely go through this life without stealing, have I fulfilled that commandment of the law? And the answer, of course, again, is no. I fulfill this law when I'm the kind of person who works hard for whatever money that you have, that I have, so that I can be crazy, radically generous to the other people that are around me. That's what love is. If you never understand this about the law, that it was given to be an absolute definition of love, you don't understand the law, you see. And by the same token, all of the songs and all of the slogans and all of the hashtags about love mean nothing without the absolute definition of love in God's law. Are you still with me? Say amen if you're still with me. Okay, good. You guys are hard to read sometimes. Okay, I want to move on. Let's move on to the second point. Not only does love have to have an absolute definition to be meaningful, it also has to have a righteous motivation. And let me explain that, okay? All of these slogans about love, love uh, for everyone, hate for no one, love for all, hate for no one. I think that's what the billboard says next to my house. All of these, in order to be meaningful, in order to do any good in this world, that love has to have a righteous motivation. I want to show you what I mean. When Jesus responds to this teacher of the law, I want you to notice in verses 30 and 31, Which commandment he starts with, and then which one is the last? Which comes first, and which comes second? Now, I'm going to put it up here on the screen so that you can see it. Verse uh, 30, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. By the way, circle all of those alls. Those are meaningful. 
The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's pretty easy to see, isn't it? Which one came first? Which one came second? Pretty easy to see. Love for your neighbor flows out of love for God. Now, just in that, uh, in that arrangement, Jesus is saying something very profound and very insightful here. He's saying that the only way that anything that you do to another person, the only way that it's loving is if it's motivated by a heart that is filled with love for God. Okay? This is, what I, this is what I mean when I say that to be meaningful. Love must have an absolute uh, righteous motive. Okay? Now, let me, let, me just, let me just explain. The kind of religion that this teacher of the law had been taught is sort of like the kind of legalistic religion that many of you were taught in your church backgrounds. He was taught that... The law was, the, co- the codes, the rules, all of the Mosaic law was to be used in order to get God's blessings. In other words, you have to do some things and you have to not do some things in order to get God to bless you. You have to keep the law. You have to keep, you have to keep the Mosaic law in order to get God to bless you. That's, that's the motive, right? To get God to bless you. And if you don't do them, you you won't get God to bless you. In fact, you might even be cursed if you don't do these things. Now, here's the problem. And by the way, let me just say this, a little parenthesis here. Uh, This is true of every religion. I mean, whether it's whether it says it's Christian, whether it says it's uh, whether it's Buddhist, whether it's uh, Islam, whether it's Judaism, every religion in the world is like this. It says that you must follow our laws, you must follow our code, you must follow our rules in order to get your get their God's blessings, whoever their God is, to experience Nirvana, to go to heaven, whatever it is that they say. That every religion in the world is like that. Okay. Here's the problem with religion. If you have to obey to get blessed by your God, your motive for doing what you're doing, your motive for doing loving things, your motive for doing good in the world can only be one of three possibilities. And for those of you, by the way, those of you who've taken the class that I teach a couple weeks of the month called Best News Ever, by the way, which is open to everybody, uh, those of you who, te- who have been to that class, you'll, you, you will know what I'm about to say here. The only possibilities for your motive for doing good to your neighbor can only be fear, guilt, or pride. That's it. If you have to do something to get your God's blessings... You can only be doing it out of fear, guilt, or pride. If I believe that I have to do something to get something from God, I'll be fearful about not getting it. I better do it or I won't get it. I might get punished. I might get cursed. Or maybe I'll feel guilty for not doing what I was supposed to do. Man, I didn't do it. I feel horrible about that. Or I did what I wasn't supposed to do. I feel terrible about that. And I don't want to feel either one of those things. Or maybe I'll do it so that I can feel better about myself because I did something that other people didn't do. But here's what I want you to notice about all those motives, all three of those motives, fear, 
Guilt or pride? All three of those motives. Do you see that all three of those motives are self-centered? Do you see that? Do you get that? They're all self-centered. You don't want to feel fear, so you do the right thing. You don't want to feel guilty, so you do the right thing. You don't want to feel lower than anyone else, so you do the right thing. Do you know what you're doing when you do those, when you, when you do good things to your neighbor out of fear, guilt, or pride? Do you know what you're doing? You're actually strengthening your inherent self-centeredness by doing good. You're not doing what you're doing out of love for the people in your world. You're doing those things for yourself. Now, outside, I will grant you, perhaps nobody knows the difference, but you know, if you're willing to examine yourself honestly, and more importantly, God knows, that what you have been doing is doing these good things for yourself, not for the person that you're doing it for, that you're supposed to be doing it for. You see, the basic problem with humanity is that we're all self-centered. In fact, so much so that even our apparent good deeds are about us rather than our neighbors. And so you're making yourself more self-centered by doing good to get rid of guilt or fear or low self-esteem. That is not a righteous motivation. That will not heal the world. That won't bring healing into your friends' lives. It won't bring, uh, it won't bring healing into your neighbors' lives, into your coworkers' lives, into your family's lives. It won't. Because it's a selfish motivation. You will end up manipulating people and circumstances and things so that you can relieve your fear or your guilt or so that you can feel prideful. The only way that you can ever genuinely love your neighbor in a way that brings healing is with a righteous motivation. And the only way that you can have a righteous motivation is if you don't have to worry about yourself anymore. Like if you already have all of the blessings that God can ever give you. It's like, I, it's like, okay, I can do this or not do this. I'm not going to get or lose blessings as a result. I'm not going to go to heaven if I do it or go to hell if I don't. The only way that you can have a righteous motivation is if all of that is solved, is that if you have all of the blessings that God can ever give you, then when you do something good for someone else, even if you don't do it perfectly, It's going to bring healing into their world. It's going to bring genuine love into their broken world because you're doing it out of a loving, thankful heart for God rather than doing it to get something from God. And you see, this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ says. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that at the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross, that God gives you everything that he could ever give you at that very moment. Go back and read Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bible sometime. Ephesians chapter 1, it describes all of those blessings that you get at the moment that you believe in Christ. Therefore, you cannot do anything else that's going to get you more blessings or lose you blessings. It's all there. And then, out of a heart that is like, oh God, I, I want to love people because of the way you love me. That's a righteous motivation. I'm not doing it out of guilt. I'm not doing it out of fear. And I'm not doing it because I want to look better than anyone else. I'm just doing it because I, I love God. And, and, and because of that, I want to show love to the world that I live in. You see, it has to have, in order for love to be meaningful, Uh, selfless. It has to have 
a righteous, selfless motivation. And without that, all of the slogans and all of the songs and all of the hashtags are meaningless. Love for God is the righteous motivation that gives love for other people real meaning. Now, this leads to me to my last point. And let me come at it uh, from sort of a question. So how do you get to that place where, like, you don't have to worry about yourself anymore and where you can just love people without regard for yourself? How do you get to that place? Here's the answer. In order for love to be meaningful, selfless, it has to have an ultimate demonstration. And and here's what I mean by that. I want you to notice what the teacher of the law's response is to Jesus when Jesus tells him this. Like Jesus says, you know, yeah, the two most important commandments, love God, uh, love your neighbor. He says back to Jesus, he says, well said, teacher, the man replied. I think that's funny. You know, anytime that you're like with Jesus and you go, well, that was a good answer, Jesus. He's like, I already knew that. Thank you. Anyway, well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding. Notice he's picking up the alls, okay? To love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, and with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important, and this is interesting, than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had, he's talking about this man, when Jesus saw that this man had answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you're, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Why does Jesus tell this guy that he's not far from the kingdom of God. That's an interesting response. Why does he tell him, you're not far from the kingdom of God? Well, I want you to look at what this guy said. He says, this guy says to Jesus, he says, you're right. Loving my neighbor out of a love that flows from God is more important than, and this is really where I want you to focus, all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, why does he add burnt offerings and sacrifices? It's because besides the moral part of God's law, another part of God's law was the sacrificial system by which Israel could be forgiven for their sins. God knew Israel couldn't love him perfectly. They couldn't love their neighbors perfectly. So he gave them a sacrificial system to deal with their sins. Commentators feel that what's happening here is that a light is beginning to dawn in this man's soul. That he's beginning to see the law in a new way. He's beginning to see that it was intended to define, like I said earlier, what what love looks like. And he's beginning to see the deep self-centeredness of his own heart that has kept him from loving people in the way that the law described. Oh, he would have been a man that probably never stole, probably never committed adultery. But he wouldn't have been a loving man. He would have been an outwardly good man, but not a loving man. And as this begins to dawn on him, he begins to realize 
that if doing this law perfectly is what it required for God's blessing, he will never receive it because his sin is so deep that all of the animal sacrifices in the world, all of the blood in the world shed by an animal couldn't begin to cover the depth of his sin. Now, if, that's, if that is indeed what's happening to this man, it represents an enormous change in his life. He is near the kingdom of God in the sense that he is beginning to see the depth of his sin. And let me just now turn this around. Let me turn it on you. Are you able to do that? Are you able to see how far short you fall of loving God with what was the word? All of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, all of the time, 24-7, every day, for the rest, for, the, for your entire life. And then, can you see how far short you fall of loving, loving your neighbor as yourself? Like with all of the passion and with all of the energy and all of the thoughtfulness that you love yourself with and that you meet your own needs with. If you can get to that place where you recognize how far short you fall, if you can own that, if you can admit that you're a part of the problem in the world, that the problem isn't just, it's not just like out there, but it's in here. The problem isn't just the ISIS uh, terrorists, it's me. The problem isn't just a person of a different skin color, the problem is me. If you can get to that place, you are near, not, not in yet, but you're near the kingdom of God. Well, if all of the animal sacrifices in the world couldn't cover this man's sin, what could wash away his sin? And what could wash away my sin? And what could wash away your sin? Two days after this conversation, Jesus would suffer and die on a Roman cross. And the Bible says he did this, in doing this, that all of this man's sin in this passage, and all of your sin, and all of my sin, and all of the sin of the terrorist who drove a truck through the promenade in Nice, and all of the sin of the man who shot the police officers in Dallas, and all of the sin of the police officers who treated black people with violence. All of that sin that has caused so much terror and tragedy and violence and pain in just one month of human history, all of that sin plus all of the rest of the sin in human history was placed upon Jesus there on the cross. They're the only one who has ever perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. The only one who's ever perfectly fulfilled the law took the punishment on the cross for all of us who have not fulfilled the law. The only one who never sinned took the punishment for all of our sins. And there on that Roman cross was the ultimate demonstration of love for God and love for his neighbor. One of the disciples who was there and who saw Jesus hang on that cross, and who later saw him raised from the dead, 
Later on, many years later, he, he wrote this. He said, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For you to move, for me to move, for this man to move from being near the kingdom of God to being in the kingdom of God, you must believe this about Jesus Christ, that he was an atoning sacrifice for your sins and that there is no other sacrifice for your sin. Once you believe that, the Bible says, the implications of Christ's ultimate demonstration of love are such that every blessing you can ever get from God is given to you in that moment of belief so that you will never have to worry about yourself again. You'll never have to live with fear or guilt or a low self-esteem. It requires you to do something just so that you can feel better about yourself. The cross changes all of that. If, you've, if you have never believed, if you're here this morning, you've never believed in Jesus Christ, you need to believe today, right in the privacy of your seat. You don't have to walk an aisle or anything, just in the privacy of your seat. If you're going to be of any help to this world, this is the only way that real love can bring healing to the world that you live in, is if it flows out of your love for God because of what he did for you in Jesus on the cross. That's the only way. And so you need to believe. Love for all, hate for none. Yes, absolutely. But the only way that word love has any meaning is if it's flowing out of God, not flowing out of your need to do something to make yourself feel better. Now, for those of you who have believed in Jesus Christ, you need to recognize that at the cross, Jesus, as I said earlier, has secured for you all of the blessings of God. As I said earlier, go back and read Ephesians 1. That'd be a great thing to do this Sunday afternoon. You don't have to earn God's acceptance and love by your performance. You need to repent and confess that many of the good things you have done were done not out of a heart of love for what God has done for you in Christ, but out of fear and guilt and pride, out of a selfish heart rather than a genuinely loving heart. You know something? Get this. I want you to understand this. Some people never repent. Religious people only repent of their sins. But Christians repent of even their good deeds that were done out of fear and guilt and pride. And once you've done this, once you've owned that, once you've repented and confessed that, you need to keep preaching to yourself this gospel. And you need, you need to begin to love people in your relational world out of a heart that is head over heels in love with God for what he has done for you in Christ. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And this is the love that the people in your world so desperately need. And it's the kind of love that the rest of our world desperately needs. And it's the only love that brings meaning to all of the slogans and all of the songs and all of the hashtags about love. Would you bow your heads with me? Love as you have defined it in your law. God is far greater than the kind of love that I have ever demonstrated. I fall woefully short of that. We as a church fall woefully short of that love.
were it not for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, none of us could experience any of your blessings. And Lord Jesus Christ, that's why we as a church lift you up. We want to praise you because what you did at the cross, what you suffered and died on our behalf, made it possible by believing in you for all of us to experience all of the blessings of God that can never leave. We never lose them on the basis of what we do right or wrong. We never lose them. We always look to the cross and we recognize that there all of the blessings of God were secured for us. And so that frees us now to love people without regard for ourselves in the very same way, Lord Jesus, that you love on a cross. You loved us without regard for yourself. Lord, would you make me, would you make each person here, would you make us as a church the kind of people that love in that way without regard for ourselves, and that as a result of that, we would change our own relational worlds and ultimately change the city of Evansville with that kind of love that has definition and that has a righteous motivation and it comes from the ultimate demonstration of love. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we